Melchizedek? Sure, yeah, Melchizedek um, is in Genesis 14 and in Psalm 110. And then, completely unmentioned, so Genesis 14, written in the 1500s BC, Psalm 110, written about 1000 BC, then unmentioned by any of the prophets, as far as I know, um, all the way up to the writing of the book of Hebrews. Uh, and so this kind of enigmatic thing and person and occurrence and order of priesthood unknown to so many of us, all of a sudden becomes this central expectation of the Messiah in Psalm 110, where everyone understood that the Messiah was going to come after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus, in being a priest of God's people, did not come from the Aaronic priesthood. He wasn't a Levite. He was of the tribe of Judah. They can't be priests of Israel. And that's where Jesus is going, I'm not a priest of Israel. I'm a priest that predates Israel. Melchizedek was a priest king of God in Salem before Abraham was saved. Which means, again, what we have in the Old Testament is, a, is largely a picture of how God was interacting with uh, his people, Israel. We don't have an exhaustive record of what he was doing in the world. Melchizedek is a perfect example. We have no idea what God was doing with him. We don't even know who he was. Yeah, it's mentioned that he was a legitimate priest king of God in Jerusalem, ancient Salem, before it was a city. But back when it was just a something, we don't even know. Um, because our archaeology can't go back to the time of Moses. That's in 2000 BC. What was God doing? I don't know. Nobody does. God doesn't tell us. The story of the Exodus is at least 12, 1300 years after the flood, if you take the short chronology. What was going on for those 1,300 years, right? The entire history of Israel from entering Canaan all the way to the birth of Jesus is less time than that. We have no idea. We just have no idea. We have a table of nations and the idea that, that God is doing things that he's just not telling us about. Uh, and then it zooms in in Genesis 12 on Abraham and his sons and the, the story of Israel. What God is doing elsewise, we see pictures of it, little confusing blips why is it that he sends one of his prophets to Assyria, Nineveh? Why does he send Jonah there? Can anyone even give me a legitimate explanation as to why that happened? He wanted them to worship him. Yeah, why? His people were Israel and Assyria was about to come and destroy his people. They were the ones that carried them away captive and they ended up in Babylon and Persia. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. So the king of all of Assyria, who in three generations, his children and descendants would come and take over all of Israel and lead them away captive. The book of Joel says, at God's own direction, by the way. Why? We don't know. What, what, like, for instance, another one that shows up, enigmatic, even in the New Testament, it happens all over the place. Who are the Magi? And how in the world did they know to come to Bethlehem? No, excuse me. They knew to come to Jerusalem. They didn't know where exactly, which means this was not a very low star following in front of them. They came to Jerusalem, and remember what they asked? Where, we, they inquired from Herod and from the Pharisees, where is he to be born? Because all we know is we're in the right land, and we know to expect him. How? They were astrologers. They studied the stars. How did they know? What was God doing in Persia, which is where they were from? I don't know. The only thing I know is the only connection between the Magi and the promises of God goes back to the time of Daniel, who was the head of the Magi in Persia. Was something said to Daniel? Was something said to those who came after him? Was God carrying on some, some prophetic ministry there in Persia that he doesn't let us know about? Apparently, because they knew, hope, we see a star. Like, what star? There's no prophecy in the Old Testament that says, oh, by the way, Messiah's star is totally going to be over Israel. And uh, when you see whatever is happening in the sky, whatever that looks like, go to Israel. <laughs> Nobody knows. These types of enigmatic things happen, and they were much more common in the Old Testament because in the New Testament, Christ has clearly portrayed the gospel and given us the picture 
of salvation. So the book of Hebrews comes in and says, you know all that enigmatic stuff? You know all the stuff that didn't really fully complete? Jesus has completed all of it. You know that angel of the Lord that gave the law? Jesus, Jesus completed that. He said, well, wasn't that him? Yes, it was him. But him veiled. He said, well, what about in his incarnation? Is that him fully expressed? No, that's him veiled in flesh. What does he look like? As the radiance of God is the imprint of his nature. In fact, it says the exact imprint of God's nature. Here we have in Christ a picture of God that is the clearest thing that anyone has ever seen. Including Moses. Including the priests. Including anyone who brought any sacrifice to any altar. And he argues throughout this book that the whole concept of looking forward to an eternal salvation was built into the temporal nature of the sacrifices. Think about it. Even you come to the highest day of sacrifice, the Day of Atonement. What do you put on your calendar as soon as you finish the Day of Atonement? Next year's Day of Atonement. There's, there's no hope that this has once and for all taken care of the issue between me and the Lord. It is to understand that I'm going to come back yet again. And deal with this again. Because whether intentional or unintentional, on purpose or accidental sins, the reality is I'm going to have a sinfulness that needs to be dealt with. And it is temporal by nature because what do we know about the blood of bulls and goats from the book of Hebrews? It cannot actually take away sins. Sins are eternal issues. The blood of bulls and goats is temporal. And so we need an eternal sacrifice, not a temporal one. And so all of these pictures throughout the Old Testament come to a head in the book of Hebrews and saying, this is the nature of what Christ has done. Interspersed with that, now we're not here just studying the book of Hebrews. It is a remarkable book that has owed every Christian's uh, focus because it is so overlooked, because it's complicated. But it's so rewarding to walk through it. And, and even I'll add my uh, encouragement there. He says, anytime you see a, an Old Testament quote, go look it up and read it in context. And you will be just absolutely flummoxed about how this all ties into absolutely everything. Incredible stuff, right? But we're here for the Holy Spirit. So now let's kind of zoom in onto that concept. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament very, very clear or enigmatic and a little bit hard to predict. Is the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament really, really clear about what he's going to do and how he's going to do it? Or does he do it here differently and then here differently and then there differently and has this almost unpredictable nature about what he's going to do? I mean, the New Testament, it kind of starts off unpredictable, but then it kind of becomes clear what he's doing. He's saving people. He's convicting of sin. He's sanctifying God's people. And while that looks different to different people at different times, it brings forth a unity in the church that we've come to predict and aim for. So that which used to be so enigmatic and bizarre, think of the stories. Think of Samson, right? Why is the Holy Spirit involved with a jawbone of a donkey killing a thousand people and stacking them up in a field? Remember those questions when we were back there. Why is the Holy Spirit involved in this story? Like, it's so strange. And then all of a sudden, David, out of the middle of nowhere, has the Holy Spirit from the day he is anointed to the day of his death. Why? Nobody else got that. You go to Ezekiel, and you see the Holy Spirit going to Ezekiel, who's got this long hair, and he just grabs him by the hair and drags him around the world, and then plops him down and says, okay, now speak here. Picks him back up by his hair, lifts him around the world, and then goes back down and sets him down. What is the Holy Spirit doing? Why is it so strange and bizarre? Why are there all these aspects? And this is why we walk through all of this. Because then when we come to the New Testament, there are these rapid-fire successive actions of the Holy Spirit, starting with the virgin conception of Jesus of Nazareth. And then extending through. And then he shows up as a dove at his baptism. And then, by the will of the Father, the action of the Son, and the power of the Spirit, the Trinity goes out and works every single miracle of Jesus's ministry, all in unison. 
And so now all of a sudden, what used to be strange and bizarre, and you bury somebody on top of a prophet and they pop back to life, and you know, like all this crazy stuff that the Spirit has been doing, all of a sudden we see concentrated in the person of Christ. Just one after another, all the way through his ministry, all the way through. Not a word is on his lips that doesn't come from the Father. Not a work on his hands is done without the expressed will of the Father. And not a single thing is done without the power of the Holy Spirit throughout his entire ministry. And then what does he say towards the end? It is better for my people that I leave because I'm sending the Spirit. Now that spirit that used to be, to our eyes and perspective, unpredictable, is now going to come to the church and do very predictable, focused action. And by his power, the church will go forward and the gates of hell will not conquer it. And the book of Hebrews is written at that time where the church has understood now, and it's still written at the time, best as we can tell, while the temple in Jerusalem is still standing and they're still trying to do sacrifices and things there. Imagine how hard our theology would be with that standing there. How many Christians would go, yeah, we still need the blood of bulls and goats. Yeah. And so the book of Hebrews is necessary to be written to the Hebrew people and saying, look, we don't need any of that. We don't need a standing temple. We have a temple. What is it called throughout the, script, throughout the New Testament now? What is the temple of God? It was the body of Christ, and then after his ascension, the church is called the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's built on two very important foundation stones and one cornerstone. Who's the cornerstone? That's an easy one, Sunday school. It's Jesus. Who are the two rounds of foundation stones? But the prophets and the apostles, Old Testament, New Testament, all of which are lined up to Christ. This is how the book of Ephesians describes it. This is how the book of First Peter describes it. And then the book of Hebrews comes in and says, therefore, let us think about this in the manner of, uh, of the way of this. What is the Spirit of God doing now that the church age is 30 years old? Let's go into it. Chapter 2. Start verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. The importance of not losing sight of the promises that have been given to the church. It is so tempting sometimes for Christians that first stumble into the Old Testament to go back and go, you know what, maybe they actually had a better setup there. You didn't really have to depend on God, right, if you just offered a sacrifice. You could just go, sacrifice here, sacrifice is offered, I'm good. You know, it's, it's all in our hands. We can see it, we can feel it, we can smell it. And it, it's so tempting to look at that and say, ah, I got this accomplished. And yet we will find ourselves, again, in the book of Hebrews, reminding us to look back at Cain and Abel, both of whom offered sacrifices. And I can't tell you how many Sunday school teachers mistaught this and still misteach this. Why was Cain's sacrifice not accepted? In, in the Sunday school class I had, uh, the explanation was given that, well, he didn't offer a lamb. He offered the fruit of the field. And so the sacrifice was wrong. No, it wasn't. There's perfectly legitimate sacrifices of the fruit of the field offered in the law. And obviously Cain was before the law was given like that. Perfectly legitimate sacrifice to be given. What was wrong? Hebrews chapter 11 says it explicitly. Abel offered his sacrifice in faith, and Cain didn't. Which means... Yes. Not only jealousy, because that comes afterwards. In his heart, God better accept this because I'm given it. You see that? The, the expression was not on a dependence that God would overlook my sin here because because of his mercy and grace. It is to say, I am purchasing God overlooking my sin. You see the difference? 
And the book of Hebrews chapter 11 will actually spell this out explicitly with Cain and Abel because some people are going around saying, you know, the old covenant can actually be better because we can see the efficacious nature. If we take a stack of grain and we offer it on the fire as a grain offering to the Lord, transaction finished, no faith required. That's why we have the example of the faithful men and women throughout the history of God's people, starting with Cain and Abel and working all the way forward. And the difference between Cain and Abel wasn't that one offered a good sacrifice, the other one didn't. They both offered sacrifices. One offered it in faith and one offered it without faith, which predates Melchizedek, it predates Noah, it predates Abraham, it predates everything which means God has always interacted on the basis of faith. This is not some new thing, right? So with that having been said, look at what he says here. Therefore, we at this point in history must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Listen to what he says here because it's really, really important. If the picture, sacrifices, temple, priesthoods, if the picture of salvation and the rejection of that was dealt with so harshly, what if we actually find ourselves rejecting Christ, who is the one pictured? Think, think of the danger involved right? You say if, if you have uh, a kid in the middle of the night, right? Afraid of a shadow of a monster on the wall, right? A picture. You say there's terror, there's real terror. And maybe it's indicative of real danger that this kid is in. And he's saying, look, those who rejected just the picture of these things were dealt with harshly. What if we reject the monster himself. What if we reject Christ? He says, this is not just a continuance of similar expression. This is picture substance. This is shadow monster. He said, this, this is an, a monster in the good thing, but not if you go against him, right? Th this is not you know, oh, and, and people look at the New Testament this way. They go, oh man, look at, look at how mean God is in the Old Testament. Look how, look how judgmental he is. And then we come to the New Testament and Jesus is so nice. Everything's great. They have it exactly backwards. The Old Testament was just a shadow and a wisp of who Christ truly is in all his glory. And so those who think that in his incarnation we have the fullest expression, no. What did he say? I did not come to bring peace on the earth. I came to bring a sword. And at this point in the church age, the sword sometimes comes between family members, believers and unbelievers. People lose their life for following Christ. What does he promise? If you lose it, you will find it. And those who truly try to preserve their life, they're going to lose it. I will see to it. And if they think they can hide in the grave, I'm the one that's going to pull them out of the grave and I will make them account for everything they have done in the body. That's, that's not, you know, have a buddy over for dinner type guy. That is the creator of the universe himself walking around in human form. And so when we say, oh, is Jesus the exact picture of what God is like? Yes. Veiled still. So what do we see when we come to the book of Revelation, for instance? Does Christ remind you of what he was like when he was walking around the world? Feet of burnished bronze that leave behind flames when he walks. Eyes like burning lamps. Hair that's a shock of white. Swords that proceed out of his mouth and slay those who refuse to come to the Lord. Is, is this the same picture that you have from, you know, Matthew or Mark or Luke? No. Not until you get to his promises about how he will deal with the world. Go read the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25. And see in there Jesus explaining, those who come to me to be saved will truly find salvation, and those who don't will truly find death. And I will be the one sitting on that judgment seat. It is not a 
buddy, buddy, Jesus wants to be your friend thing. That's not the message of the cross. The message of the cross is not see how much he likes you because he died for you. It is the wrath of God was on our heads. He took it on his head instead that he might bring many sons to glory and they will live no matter what comes their way. And the spirit of God will enact this. And so he, he expressed, there's no way I'm getting through the book of Hebrews today. Verse 2. <laughs> I'm trying to get to chapter 10. There's now no way that's going to happen. Uh, chapter 2, verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, in other words, their words were true, everything they said about it was true, everything about it came to pass. If we could not escape the retribution of ignoring that message, verse 3, how shall anyone escape if they neglect a great salvation found in Christ? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. In other words, Jesus came as Lord and explained and expressed the gospel, showing us the way to salvation. And then it was attested by those who heard, the apostles. It was attested to us by those first disciples. Not just 12, there was several more, but there was 12 main disciples. There's about 70 others, or 70 total. Isn't that strange? It's a direct parallel to the uh, elders of Israel. Isn't that weird? All right, whatever. Probably doesn't mean anything. It's just probably a complete, complete coincidence, right? It was attested to us by those who heard, verse 4, and God himself bore witness. <laughs> what? Here we have ourselves sitting in a trial room, and we have as witness the Lord himself, Jesus, bearing witness about what he's here to do. And then those who heard him came and bore witness about what he came to do, about the gospel and the salvation once given by his hands, quite literally. And then God himself shows up in the witness stand, giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. What? All of a sudden, we have a whole new reason why there's gifts of the Holy Spirit in the church. It's not just about us. I know that comes as a shock. It's about the message of Christ, which means every single gift of the Holy Spirit, if it is claiming to be a gift of the Holy Spirit, best be pointing to Christ, lest you have no veracity to call it a gift of the Holy Spirit. That is his point. He will point everyone to Christ. If you have the gift of teaching, teach Christians to focus on Christ. That is the purpose. Do not do it in a way that raises yourself up. Do it in a way that raises Christ up. Do not do it in a haughty manner, for God is able to humble even the most proud of people. Do it with humility of mind. Why? Didn't Christ show us how to give the gospel in the first place? Think about the power that he had behind those hands. Think about the power of his words. Think about his holiness, if you will, for a second, and then realize how patient he was during his incarnation. His own brothers did not believe in him until after his resurrection. The people that grew up with him. And after their father died, after Joseph died, he is the oldest son, took care of his mother, which he handed the responsibility off to John, if you remember, on the cross. Which meant he was taking care of that family. And all of his siblings rejected him. Did he have the power to show them the signs and wonders of God? Could he have shown them with irrefutable evidence? Did he? Nope. It's kind of hard to wrap the head around because the reality is God could show up and convince all manner of people who he is. But he does not do this. 
He works through the mode of witnesses. You have a question, Marianne? That's correct. And I think that's why he wouldn't show his brothers. But there were those who believed because they saw. There was a lot of them, actually, all of them the apostles. They all saw him with their own eyes. They handle, I mean, John will express this in 1 John chapter 1, and he says, That which our eyes have seen, which our hands have handled concerning the word of life, we now attest to you. Right? It's not that you can't believe just because you've seen. It is that there is a certain blessing and a certain quality of faith that comes from those who have never seen. That's what Jesus says to Thomas. Thomas, the only reason you believe is because you've seen me. Don't you understand? You are going to have to give a message to people who do not have that gift. They will not be able to come and place their hand in my side and put your finger in the nail prints. You can. They can't. You must preach the gospel in a manner that doesn't expect that God's going to show up and have me verify it. We have to take it on the word of others. This is what the book of Hebrews really expresses here at the beginning. God used to speak. In fact, it's the first verse of the book of Hebrews. God used to speak and reveal things in all manner of ways. Prophets and strange occurrences and things like this. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son and shown us the nature of these things. And his son spoke about salvation, and then the ones who saw it, his disciples and the apostles, they spoke to us and bore witness about it. God himself bore witness about this even further by the gifts of the Holy Spirit and by the attestation of the, excuse me, the legitimacy of the message that they preached. That was the whole point. It wasn't so that Christians should show off. It was so that the message that they're preaching had veracity. Same thing with Christ. He comes and he is expressing his ability to save, even to the uttermost, those who believe in him. And in order to say that, you say, well, then your power in the spiritual realm must be beyond anything that we've ever seen. He says, indeed it is. And he commands evil spirits to leave. He cast them out with a word, not with anything else, no other tricks, nothing. Just the word of the creator himself is able to do that. He says, all of this not only was from the Lord and the apostles, but even the Holy Spirit himself bears witness to the legitimacy of our message. These miracles, these wonders, these spiritual gifts, prophecy, speaking in tongues, Whatever the case may be, those being distributed according to his will, God's will, shows the veracity and bears witness to the message of the gospel. Which means, not only should the church know what Christ said, the church should know what the apostles said. There is a huge push in the church these days, if you are not aware, to thoroughly ignore anything that Paul or Peter or John ever wrote and only pay attention to the Gospels. You want to know why that is? <laughs> Glad you asked. <laughs> the Gospels still sit at the tail end of the Old Covenant and you can twist what they say very easily. Right? Do they ever, does Jesus ever sit down and give a whole explanation of exactly how justification works? exactly how faith works? No. He'll give parables. He'll give pictures. He'll give stories. And then he'll demonstrate it with miracles and then not explain to anyone but his disciples. And even then, only about 10% of the time. Which means if you want to twist something in the New Testament, the easiest things are the bookends. The Gospels and the book of Revelation. And so you will find people want to ignore that which is clear, the epistles and the apostles, entire point was to clarify everything that Jesus said, to dismiss that and just to focus on Jesus. It sounds so pious, doesn't it? And yet, to focus on Jesus and to ignore the word of God is to demonstrate you are trying to create your own Jesus. Don't do that. Real Jesus will come after you. All right, chapter three. <laughs> 
there is a consistency to all of this, and I just want to see this in passing as we are working through the book of Hebrews. All throughout the book of Hebrews, he is quoting the Old Testament, left, right, center, everywhere, constantly. And he reminds us here in chapter 3 who it is that is speaking when you read the scriptures. Verse 7. Who is it that speaks when you read the scriptures? Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one speaking when you read the scriptures. Why is that important? Consistency. From Genesis all the way through, at this point, while the book of Hebrews is being written, the Holy Spirit is the one who is giving the scriptures. Which means, if you want consistency in what you believe, and if you want consistency with the message of Jesus, where are you going to go? And where does the Holy Spirit speak? In the quiet hours of your room all alone? Or has he spoken somewhere? Scriptures. The amount of Christians who would prefer to hear a personal word from God and never crack open their Bibles are some of the most dangerous people in the church. You know why? Because they will take their own imaginations before a single word of Scripture ever corrects them. And so when people come in saying, well, the Holy Spirit told me this, stop right there. Unless you're about to quote scripture, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Do you know why? Because 100% of the people that have ever said that to me have no respect for scripture. And I do not believe in the inconsistency of the Holy Spirit. What he does is explain, express, inspire, and bring about, preserve, and illumine the scriptures to the heart of his people. That's what happens when we come together and talk about the scriptures. That's what happens when we faithfully preach them. That is what happens when we fellowship with one another. Fellowship is not just coming in and giving earthly wisdom to one another. It is reminding each other of the veracity of the promises of God that we may endure no matter what happens. Remember, the two main points of the book of Hebrews that we watched in this introduction today. Not only is Jesus better than everyone else, but Christian, endure to the end with faithfulness. Christians without fellowship cannot do that. You will never endure in faithfulness outside the fellowship of other Christians. It is not possible. And so when people go, I'm a Christian, I don't go to church. You're not a Christian. You, oh, let's put it this way. You have no claim to argue that. You may be a very misguided Christian, but you will be dropping like a rock in any maturity to Christ. Not because that comes from the pastor. No, it comes from the fellowship of the Spirit amongst the people of God as they remind one another of his promises. You cannot live the Christian life alone. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has not deigned for you to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. He has deigned for all of us to be that. As Peter refers to it, we are each of us living stones in this house that God is building. Mortared in by the grace of God, nothing can take us out. And we are all being built up as a spiritual house wherein sacrifices may truly be given. Sacrifices of praise. Sacrifices of generosity and service to one another. Sacrifices of love to one another. Listen to the entirety of the fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness with one another is now our sacrifice. Kindness, patience with one another, self-control. These are now the sacrifices of the church as they interact with one another and remind one another that what the Holy Spirit has said, is saying, and will always say should point us to Christ and the Holy Scriptures. That's no mincy way to say that. That is a sledgehammer to those who would come in and say, you know what, I got a new way to follow Christ that nobody's ever thought of before. No, you don't. You got a new way to leave him that I promise you somebody has thought about before and it ended in their death. Don't do that. Follow Christ, follow the scriptures. It's impossible, but it's simple. That is why the Holy Spirit is in his church. Let's go to chapter 6. All throughout the book of uh, Hebrews, and I'll put the... No, damn it. Uh, I thought I could put the whole summary up there again. I can't do it. Whatever. Um, all throughout here, there's reminders to not fail to follow Christ. And there's sometimes those that join the assembly of the church, the visible assembly, 
that demonstrate themselves not to be Christians at all because of their self-focus, self-service, and ignorance and ignoring of the scriptures. And so good warnings should always sit to any of our minds. Verse 1, chapter 6, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. No. In other words, don't just keep going back to the beginning. Grow up. Uh, and of instructions about washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him to contempt. If that doesn't uh, elicit just goodness, a modicum of fear in you, You didn't really pay attention. It is possible, look at that list, for those who have been enlightened to the truth of the gospel, who have tasted some of that heavenly gift, who have even shared in what the Holy Spirit is doing in the midst of people, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and how efficacious it can be to those who live in accordance with it, even if they're not Christians. It is wisdom itself built into something you can carry, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Now, is this saying true Christians can lose their salvation? No. It's saying the church has false Christians in it all the time. And the real fear in reading this should not be that I, as a Christian, might lose my salvation. The real fear should be, was I ever a Christian to start with? Let me look at the promises of Christ again and again when those fears arise. Let me ask myself honestly, and even as the scripture encourages us to make our calling and election sure, to take heed lest there be in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart, self-deceiving us, thinking that we are part of the cross of Christ when we are in fact not. Now you see where the fear comes from? It's not a fear of losing salvation. It's a fear of the fact that people can be self-deceived in thinking that they are Christians. In fact, if you want to be more terrified, listen to the words of Christ on this matter, the majority of people who think themselves Christians and followers of Christ are not. What did Jesus say about this? Many will come to me on that day saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we, and listen to the works that they were able to do, prophesy in your name and do good works in your name? Didn't we preach in your name? And what was his answer to them? Get away from me. Workers of iniquity. I, not I knew you and you left me. I never knew you. The fear of these passages should not be centered on a true Christian can lose their salvation. That is not biblically possible because the Spirit of God will continue to sanctify. But it is possible to not be a Christian and think you are. And so the scripture does not have us look at our Christian life and go, you know what? Everything's great. Everything's going swell. I can preach in the name of Christ. I can do good works. Go to church. I have my favorite pastors online, favorite sermons, favorite philosophers. I like to read the Bible. It's nice. When times of ease come across the life of the church, the amount of false Christians goes way up. And this is one of the reasons, and I will share this just personally, this is one of the reasons I specifically thank God for sufferings. Because it is only in times of grave difficulty that we can see if our faith has quality. 
Because when grave difficulties come, that's when false faiths start letting us down. That's when the hopes that have only been wisps of reality demonstrate to have been false all along. Suffering shows us who we really are. You say, well, as a Christian, I didn't suffer very well at this point. Did you suffer with Christ in mind more this time than the time before? It's not about a grade. It's about a trajectory and an aim of that life. Is God here to serve you or are you here to serve him? Those are two very different approaches into the world. When we look at the Lord and we say, you know, I've done this and that and that. Look at, the, look at the response of the people who come to the Lord and he says he doesn't know them. We've done this, this, this. And that. Where's their focus? Themselves. I've done this. I've done that. I've accomplished this. Here's the thing. Here's my maturity. Here's my clarity. Who, I've read the Bible. I've prayed. I've gone to church. Everything's been great. Is that how one is saved? The fear that this should work in people is not that Christians can lose their salvation. No. It is that they may not have been Christians at all. And we should look at our hearts and our minds with sober thinking. Because I promise you this. If you are able to deceive yourself, you will be able to deceive others. And throughout all of this, the person who is writing the book of Hebrews is not coming in and saying, you know, just, just try to be good and try to make everything okay and everything should work out in the end. No. He actually expresses the reality that there is a type of person. L look at the description of this. And, and this is important because he uses these terminologies to connect it straight to the Holy Spirit's work. Verse 4. Look at that first phrase. It is impossible. And then he identifies the person and then he finishes the sentence to restore them again to repentance. That sentence goes all the way to verse 6. It is impossible to restore such a person as this. They come, they hear about Christ, they have been enlightened as to his salvation. They've even tasted of that heavenly gift. They've been around it when it happens. They see things. They react even emotionally to the songs sung and the, the, the hopes that are given to this. Many such people. They've tasted that heavenly gift. They've shared in the action of the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit doing amongst the people of God? They've seen great gifts exercised in the local assembly. They've seen speaking in tongues. They've heard prophecies. They've heard interpretations of both. They've seen the gifts of faith, the gifts of mercy that people have amongst people. They see the fellowship of true Christians. They get to just partake in being around the aura of that. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God. They can come to the scriptures and go, here we have absolutely something that nobody can deny is good the scriptures themselves, and they, they've tasted that. They've seen its power. They've seen the promises of the age to come. And then, without the Spirit of God, the best thing that a man can hope for is to be close to where God is working and then fall away. That is what will happen. Whether they die before they fall away or they don't and they live long enough to see them fall away themselves. That such a one will not be restored to repentance. Why? Because there's no other solution except the one they've already rejected after fully knowing what it was. They're crucifying once again the Son of God. It wasn't good enough for them the first time. It ain't going to be good enough for them the next time. This, this is... This is what is called, in theology, apostasy. I have known many. And I can attest to you, I have never seen one of them come to faith in Christ again. Not one. I've never seen it. I have known many friends, some I went to seminary with, others I've known as 
pastors. That go through all of this, come to it and say, nah. But everyone was encouraging them all along, go to seminary. You're such an eloquent speaker. You should be a pastor. You should be preaching. You have the gift of speaking. Obviously, then, the Spirit of God is giving you the gift of teaching. And they take these tests that tell them which spiritual gift they have. By the way, those are all worthless. Because they can tell unbelievers that they have spiritual gifts. It makes them completely worthless. I have never seen one of them come back to the Scriptures and come back to God, ever. Not one time in all my life. And I have seen it happen a dozen times to people that have been close to me. And yeah, do I read this and I fear? Yes. Yes, I follow the Lord in fear. It is one of the things that keeps me humble. Not that I will one day be found out to be fake. No. But because I know the depth of self-deception, I have seen it on people's faces, and I know that even as convinced as I am, even I, not looking after myself, even I, not giving attention to the growth of the Lord, not giving attention to the Word of God, not working in myself in the fellowship of other Christians, the faith once delivered to all, that I too could prove to have been self-deceived the whole time. Be careful, the book of Hebrews says, to see if there is in any of you an evil and an unbelieving heart. Why careful if it's so obvious? It's not obvious. Sometimes false teachers do not know that they are false teachers. Sometimes, in fact, according to Christ, the majority of false Christians do not realize that they are self-deceived. And so the book of Hebrews, there's a reason why people avoid this book. It makes us uncomfortable. And it should. And if that discomfort causes you to say, well then, throw up your hands, forget it. You're responding wrong. The discomfort should cause you to trust in Christ even more because there's nothing in you that can enact saving faith. Only the Spirit of God brings this. After scaring them to death, Look at verse 9, if you will, for a little bit of salve. Well, let's, let's read the last part of his thinking in verse 7 and 8 first to hear how terrifying it is. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He is speaking to a church of people that they understand to be saved. Now, the reality is even the apostles themselves could not perceive fully 100% if somebody was saved. That humility should be in the way we speak of each other. Let us encourage faith in one another, lest we lose it. It, it. it makes me cringe inside every time I hear somebody say at a funeral, this person was the most godly person I've ever met. You don't know that. If your establishment of godliness is based only on your experience, not the word of God, the most godly person you've ever met is Christ himself. And the greatest person Born among men, John the Baptist, <laughs> all right? So taken out all the boasting. There's nothing else to boast in. Everything else is done and gone. What does Christ say about his own disciples that he sent out and they come back so happy because the demons listen to them. They're able to heal people. They can lay hands on a blind person and they can see again. They come back exuberant. Judas Iscariot is in that mix, by the way, having done all of those actions and those miracles. And what does Jesus tell them? Stop rejoicing. They say, what, what a killjoy. No. Rejoice only 
that your names are recorded in heaven. Rejoice that God will remember you. Not that you have done these things. He says to them at a later point, when you have done all that you have been told, say we are unworthy servants still, we have only done what is our duty. We are not filling up what is lacking in the worship of God. No. We are not filling up what is lacking in the glory of God. God is not lacking in any of this. God has gifted to his people to worship him. Why? Because what you worship, you become like. Worship is a gift to us. Prayer is a gift to us. Almsgiving is a gift to the giver, not to the receiver. All of this is enacted by the Holy Spirit because this is not how humans work. This is how God works. Humans fall away. The Spirit of God raises to heaven. We're going to stop here at chapter 6. And uh, we'll maybe finish Hebrews next week. Because I'm about halfway done with what I wanted to say here. Um, all right, let's pray and thank God for all this. Father, we're very thankful for your word. What, an, what a tremendous gift the Holy Spirit is to the church. One that we often overlook. But we thank you for him, his work, his focus, and his ability to point us, even us, to Christ. To depend on him no matter what comes our path. To demonstrate for us the faithfulness that God has enacted into this world. We're very grateful for this. We pray that we become more grateful for it as the days go on and that our fellowship be that mode through which you have enacted such things. We pray for this morning, our time in your word, our time enjoying the gift of worship, that we may become more like you as you form us after the image of Christ. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.